Hello, fellow stewards. My name is Iwe So from Rethink Health, a Ripple Foundation initiative. We're hosting a new podcast called Unsung Stewards in Turbulent Times. And it's about leaders like you who are taking responsibility to tackle the big question of our time. How can we design systems with the conditions that all people need to thrive? You're not alone in wondering, can we break from business as usual in practical ways? How do we effectively lead communities and institutions to think and act in ways that will actually make a difference? And where do we find the courage to step forward when so many want to preserve the status quo? In this series, you'll hear human stories about real people in real places who are taking on these questions and making a real impact. Today, we are speaking with Fred Brown, the president and CEO of the Forbes Funds in Pittsburgh. When COVID-19 hit his community in Pittsburgh, Fred noticed two things. One, the existing healthcare and public health ecosystem was not prioritizing black and brown residents. And two, institutions went back into their silos instead of working together. Fred helped to create the Black COVID-19 Equity Coalition, a collaborative of healthcare, university, government, and nonprofit institutions to increase COVID-19 testing and address the social determinants of health for Black and Brown residents. Fred's approach to system change is deeply human, recognizing that institutional and personal trauma can often serve as a barrier to collaboration. You cannot solve a problem traumatized. You can't hear a solution traumatized. But what you will do in trauma is you will revert back to what you know. Stewardship. It's not just a theory, it's happening all around us. What is it about your life's journey? You know, where you grew up, your family life, events that have happened to you, that, that draws you to be a steward in this time. So growing up, I had a duality. Um, I was a street kid, um, but my mother ensured that I was academically sound, and she reminded me every day that I was in high school that when I turned 18, I had two choices. Uh, three, military, college, or out of her house. And so, and I knew she meant that, And this important value of education. And so my mother instilled that in me in a way that no matter what I did, no matter, I mean, I've been arrested by the police several times. I've gotten to, I've had fisticuffs with the police growing up. Um, The police did not treat me well as a kid or as a young adult. And so I have a very vivid experience of having a gun put to my head by the police when I was a teenager. And so that journey led me to uh, becoming a school teacher early on because I felt like I I understood kids. I made a connection to kids and um, I was, I felt like I understood what they needed. And so early on in my career, I was a school teacher and a probation officer. And so I I worked on both ends of the spectrum. So I got to work with kids who were academically inclined and also got to work with kids who were criminally minded, right? And so I was able to express to them repeatedly that 
you can spend time with me in the daytime here, or I can see you at night in the facility. And so I would be able to tell kids, like, I'm probably going to see you in my other job because you don't listen. And sure enough, I would see them, and they would put their head down when they saw me. And I would be like, you know, what does it take for you to hear me so I don't have to have this experience? And so during that phase of my professional career, the gang epidemic hit. The gang epidemic had a severe impact on my community. Um, During a three-year period, I buried personally over 50 kids from gang violence. And during that time period, I had a kid kind of die in my arms. And one of my worst cases was I got a phone call um, to leave a kid in the hospital because this is before they put police on the hospital emergency room doors. When gangs first hit, if they, the, uh, gang members would follow an ambulance to the hospital and then shoot, come in the hospital and shoot the kids while they still were on the operating table. And so because of my reputation, I got a text. I called the number and it basically told me that they're coming to finish the job on this particular kid that was one of my parolees. And if I was there, they couldn't guarantee my safety. And that just broke my heart. Um, This kid was brilliant, had got him a scholarship to college. Three days later, they got him. And it did something to me on the inside that just changed me. You know, the death, actually watching a black kid turn blue, um, you hear that, but actually watching the life leave somebody, it, it haunted me and has haunted me the rest of my life. And I remember a mother coming up to me who I got pointed out in the street to, and she came to my office and said, I need you to help my son. And I said, uh, which department is he with? Which which jail is he in? And she's like, he's not in jail. He's I, want, I don't want him to, to go to jail. And I said, well, I can't help him. And she, she looked at me with this quizzical look and was like, did you hear what you just said? And I said, I mean, I'm so locked into, if you're not on probation, I can't help you. Um, it didn't occur to me that she was trying to prevent her kid from being on probation, which I, I'm all about. But at this time, I didn't have any um, experience with the system that I could create within the system. Yeah, that's, that's such a heartbreaking but, but also fascinating journey um, to becoming a systems thinker, Fred. One of the remarkable ways you've you've stewarded leaders during these turbulent times is through the Black COVID-19 Equity Coalition. And in Pittsburgh, what you've done is you've been a part of creating a coordinated strategic network to mitigate the impact of the pandemic on Black and Brown communities through testing, um, through addressing comorbidities and social determinants of health. And you've galvanized um, hospitals, federally qualified health centers, universities, um, some government institutions and nonprofits all in this effort. Um, could you tell us more about the story around that? Make a long story short, I made some phone calls and convened a group of epidemiologists, epigeneticists, bioethicists, doctors, FQHC leaders. The cultural nuances that COVID will present require culturally specific responses that we don't feel the current system is capable of addressing in a salient manner. 
Um, they said thanks, but no thanks. We were hmm. disappointed, but not discouraged. And so we doubled down and reached out to Dr. Levine, who is the secretary of the Department of Health for the state. And our idea at that point was we thought we could leverage the existing resources in the sector to optimize the use of the FQACs and wrap around and create a wraparound service models with nonprofits based upon my role and Poise Foundation, Mark Lewis. And so both of us was at the table and thought that our platforms would allow strategic collaboration. And so Dr. Levine loved the idea, got on board. The work with her is beyond COVID. Our theory of change was that COVID was the tip of the spear, but the comorbidity issues that contribute to the disproportionate impact in black and brown communities predated COVID. And so this notion that we would fix this as a COVID matter just wasn't real to us. And if she wasn't interested in a long-term relationship, then we, we don't need to have any further dialogue because we're not talking about the same resolution. That she was 100% on board. And since that day, we have a monthly meeting with her. This group has volunteered their time for over 33 weeks for free. Um, Over the course of this time, we've created eight COVID-19 task force, either created, co-chair support. And so we, there was a group that was a a data group that that was being supported by the Heinz Endowment. Um, We got called into that group, began to really cultivate a cross-sectoral approach to the work, which really took off and really led us to believe like the power of inclusion, the words that we got from uh, researchers were, we would have never thought about problem solving if we had not been in this relationship with y'all. And the other thing they realized, like the docs and epidemiologists were, they didn't understand how difficult it was to be us in the nonprofit sector. Like Hmm. now that they saw it on a day-to-day basis, the the hurdles we had to jump over, the hoops, the education, the telling people over and over stuff. They were like, how do you do this? Like every day, I'm like, that's the work. Dr. Levine wanted us to share our ideas across the state. And so she asked us to create a statewide coalition, which we did. In her expression, the complexity and the coordination of what we put together, she's never seen before. And because we're talking about optimizing existing resources, and then executing a gap analysis to look at what's needed. That's really interesting because it's um, there's so many nonprofits and foundations that that give a lot of lip service to oh the importance of strategic collaboration, but in these kind of moments actually tend to sort of constrict. But this is this seems like a, it's a really specific example of of why it's worth it. Um, and yeah, it's definitely worth it because we're all vulnerable. Our mm-hmm. Our philosophy 33 months ago when I took over at the Forbes funds was that the sector would have a stress and shock that would have a similar impact that it did in 2008-9. And that we need to be forward thinking and create strategic coalitions that ward off the threat to the sector because the collective work of the sector was more important to the community than to any one institution. And so when I got to the Forbes funds in 2018, I froze our assets for a quarter, restructured our grant making, partnered with the Community Research Advisory Board, 
and basically require grantees to strategically collaborate to even sit down at the table to ask us for money. And we didn't want letters of support. I've been writing letters of support for 30 years. I want to know that you and your board talk to this board and y'all have thoroughly assessed what makes sense and what doesn't. And so our resource is going to be catalytic to support your idea or we're not going to support that. And so we've created a whole new network of strategic practitioners who are now seeing the value of that work. In no way did we ever believe a pandemic was coming out. I would be lying if I told you we knew that was coming. But because our infrastructure was being prepared for the stress and shock, it didn't take a lot for us to ramp up and create new programs. And so in March, April-ish, we started a a call for community solutions, which we've had since March 978 Zoom meetings and 12,586 participants. And so we use that platform to really test the validity of ideas, inform the, the sector about what content experts are saying out of their mouth. So we had funders on, the school superintendent on, Dr. Levine's been on the show. So anybody that's leading the charge on anything COVID related, we've invited them into the call to talk about their work. My raw estimate is on an annual basis in the city of Pittsburgh and Allegheny County, which is a complement of 1.3 million people, there's about $4.5 billion in assets being distributed in the region that you tell me what you see that's been solved, Mm. right? I, I challenge people on this and they get mad. I'm like, I'm not Debbie Downer or Danny Downer. I don't want to pick on women. It could be Danny Downer. I'm just saying, if it, it's not about money. Like, we have more than enough money to fix the problem. There's something else wrong, mm-hmm. right? There, there's something else inherently wrong if almost $5 billion in assets in multiple sectors is not fixing the problem. One is because those sectors don't work well together. They don't collaborate. And yeah. so for us... We've been trying to figure out how to work with each of those institutions behind the scenes to really lift up examples of collaboration and to really um, create space for strategic alignment Hmm. and to honor each other's difference, but to do it in a way that we get something done. I don't believe any of us can solve today's problems by ourselves. Today's social phenomena is far different than anything I've ever experienced in my lifetime. Hmm. I believe that Einstein said, and I believe this, that you cannot solve a problem with the same energy that created it. To arrive at collective genius, it requires everybody participating in that process to be fully vulnerable Hmm. and available at the same time. Um, I use the word naked, right? Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned in the previous conversation about the resistance you've experienced to collaboration. Um, and you use the word, you know, it's connected to different traumas people are experiencing. Um, and if I may just quote you from one of your articles, you put, you said, the psychobiological impact of stress and trauma on our ability to react to our environment is undeniable. 
in many ways, we cannot generate new thoughts, emotions, and responses if our minds are preoccupied with holding on to the past. So take me back to the, the Black, Black COVID-19 Equity Coalition and what you mean by like, how did, how did trauma inhibit different people or organizations? It could be institutional trauma, it could be personal trauma, um, but, but how did that show up with kind of not allowing people to be sort of vulnerable and you know what you were just talking about naked in, in some ways right. to, to, to work together yeah. and respond and adapt to a new situation? For me, what I realized when I was in these spaces and high levels, the people who had the title of leaders were managers, not leaders. And it became very apparent to me when we start talking about problem solving and ideating that that wasn't where their mind was at. It was really about optimizing the existing, existing system. And for me, that was a problem because the existing system in February wasn't kind of black and brown people. So I wasn't interested at all in maintaining that and getting back to it. As a matter of fact, I thought this was a watershed moment that we actually can be different. And so I began to push people to think outside the box and got a lot of resistance. Um, and at first, I labeled the resistance as racial, racially charged, right? Because I was just like, I'm black and I'm asking white people and they're just not about it. And so I walked away with this notion that maybe they're, I didn't think that person was racist. Like I thought I, I knew them a little bit better, um, but them not listening to me, I don't understand that, right? I'm, I think I'm making good sense. And so what I realized is as I had deeper conversations with people, they began to express their trauma on a personal level, organizational level, community level, institutional level. And it came out in different comments they would make that didn't actually relate to while I was talking to them. So I was like, they saying this, I'm talking to them about that. Why are they bringing this up in this conversation? Like, those aren't, of that. well, um, people start talking about other historical traumas in different eras being relevant in today's mm. situation, right? And so if if you bring up, you know, what happened in Haiti uh, or what happened in Africa or what happened in Germany, um, and you equate that to today, I have to assume in that conversation that you're holding on to some trauma that the pandemic has triggered in your personal life that is being brought to bear in this moment when we have a new set of issues that pandemic can build on, but it's not a result of the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't an XY correlation with the statement and the causal relationship with the pandemic. This person's undiagnosed trauma, like there's undiagnosed trauma here. So I started talking to other people, they started seeing the same thing. And then I realized, oh, okay, this makes sense to me. You cannot solve a problem traumatized you can't hear a solution traumatized but what you will do in trauma is you will revert back to what you know you are not going to take on the journey into the unknown because you you can't predict what's going to happen in the unknown but to me this is my experience as a person of color for 246 years our people was enslaved by europeans for 135 years we suffered institutional racism by the federal government and for 56 alleged years we've been free 56 years right and you and i both know and everybody that might listen to this knows that that's not true it's not happening we still 
live in tyranny in certain places of the country. There's still a plantation-like mentality in people that has just been optimized into the 21st century global economy. And plantation-like activity about controlling people, how they think, what they think, how they execute what they think, is very similar to being on a plantation. And so now new ideas that come out that you don't control and you don't understand creates fear. And if you already are suffering from trauma, I'm adding to your trauma by pushing ideas on you that you aren't comfortable with. And because mm-hmm. I don't recognize your trauma, I push harder, which now becomes an attack. Uh, now becomes an attack on you because, for me, black people are dying and you're not listening. Mm-hmm. And so we have two different lenses we're looking at problem solving from. One is for somebody else, it's a matter of logic. For me, it's a matter of life and death. And so my tenacity, my anger, my passion could come across as being angry. Because for you, your people ain't dying at the same rate as my people. Your people got way more health care than my people. Your people got way more support than my people. Your people are sheltering in place better than my people. And so I got to care about my people because you ain't caring about my people. Mm-hmm. Right? And, it, and if you're going to criticize me and critique me and judge me for caring about my people, I never once said anything about you caring about your people. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a position to control the resources, the execution of ideas, and you do that all for the benefit of your people and subjugate other people to the possibility of their ideas while you make the ideas you have a reality, that's duplicitous. That's not serving humanity. And for me, I'm struggling in this space because the nonprofit sector is, opposed, is supposed to be about humanity of all people, not some. And so I push back intensely when I see the dichotomy that we're not serving humanity. So it seems like you are saying that if if we're going to engage in any collective problem solving for humanity, um, we're going to have to understand the complexity behind what people are holding on to, their trauma. Do you have any examples where it was important for people to understand your complexity and, and what you were carrying as you were engaging in collective work? Um, I'll give you an example. Two years ago, the work I do in Berkeley around cancer, I co-chair a group out at Berkeley around in the Cancer Free Economy Network. Um, and two years ago, I pitched this idea to create an ambassador's program to create a leadership continuum because I'm trying to ensure that leadership and minority representation remain about 25% in our in our ecosystem. You know, I would just acknowledge that I'm I could be very technical and analytical in my pronouncements of my ideas. And so I think people got the idea, but they kept asking questions and it was frustrating to me. I kept saying over and over the stuff wasn't seeping in. Some younger people got the idea. They renamed it, retooled it and called it the Emerging Leaders Cohort. And it's taken off. It's not my idea anymore. It got turned over to some young people. Mm -hmm. They took it. I mean, I was on one of the calls and they talked about their idea. And to be honest with you, a part of me was bristling inside, like, well, how the hell? Y'all wasn't thinking about this two years ago. Yeah. And y'all can't even say I created it. And then I had to, like, put my ego in check and, like, mm. pat myself on the head and tell myself to calm down. Because this really was one of my babies. I did want to see 
you know, it wasn't just, I have a million ideas, but this was one that was close to my heart. And mm -hmm. so it did, I did feel a certain kind of way initially. I felt relieved and also I felt, okay, I can let go. We live for the innovation. We live for the human transformation. But the thing that gives us life is that people take our ideas and make them theirs. Mm -hmm. But the thing that makes our life sustained is that people acknowledge that we were thought partners in that process. Because for people of color, and most people won't recognize this as an issue, but black people's ideas have been being stolen since the beginning of time. This is another one of those cultural nuances that people just don't get, right? They don't take into account what's happened to black people and brown people and Native American people since the beginning of time. And so today, because you didn't actually enslave somebody or you didn't um, lynch somebody or you didn't um, beat them over the head, you didn't run a fire hose on them and their kids, that doesn't mean it, that takes away their emotional content and feeling of historical trauma and your lack of sensitivity to the things that trigger that to me illustrates a level of your lack of situational awareness if we want to create harmony that ultimately creates collective genius that allows us to problem solve how we honor each and every person is our daily responsibility and duty it's really, it's really interesting that you're able to, to really notice um, and reflect and interpret your own personal experiences and emotions uh, around engaging in collective work. Um, relatedly, how do, you, how do you navigate moments when you feel misunderstood when you're problem solving in a collective capacity? I was recently a keynote speaker on a panel conference. And for the first time that I've been in a meeting, it was with three white women. The white women all acknowledged that I was brilliant. And one of them in particular didn't say a black man that was brilliant. They said a brilliant man, right? They just acknowledged that my thoughts and ideas were brilliant, not to be defined because I was black or white, but the ideas themselves were, had a causal relationship for problem solving that was brilliant, nonetheless, whether I was black or white. And it was the first time I can acknowledge that I've been in a group of white women who readily accepted me for who I was, acknowledged my brilliance, and gravitated towards it as a problem-solving mechanism. In most instances, white people become fearful of me because of my intellect, and they expect me to stand down, and I won't. And because I won't, this is where I think the slaves subconsciousness comes in I should submit to them because they're uncomfortable and if I don't I'm the angry black man right which I don't subscribe to any of that I am a person of human nature serving humanity with black skin I'm a spiritual being having a human experience I don't see myself um, in a way that should define my ability to have or have not I see myself as a doorway and a pathway to resolution that solves problems for humanity. And so for me, I've come to a point in my journey where those people who don't want to be on that train, who don't want to take that journey with me, at this stage of my life, at 56, I cannot give that energy. 
I can only give energy to people who will at least own their own issue, their own ism, and acknowledge through whether calling me bright, brilliant, collaborative, a partner, a thought leader, I can only give my insight to that. Amplifying stewardship and the other things I'm involved with really has created a space for me to be me that doesn't exist in normal places. And I think anybody in this space needs to be around people who you could be your authentic self around, but realize that you might have to scale that up or down in different environments. The greatest challenge I have is when I start when I start unleashing who I'm, what I'm thinking, 99% of the people around me walk away. They, it's too much for them. And I keep telling them, like, this is how I think I can't help it. I can't help that my mind processes data the way it does and it comes out like that. And I feel bad because I know it turns some people off. I know that... Um, People don't always understand what I'm saying, but I'm also beginning to be in love with the fact that that's who I am. Before I hit it, now I'm finding spaces like with the RSA, the club of run with you guys, where I could be my authentic self. And, and I'm sure everybody doesn't get it, but more people do, more people comment, more people acknowledge, oh, I think differently. This is what I was thinking. This is what I heard. That is the space where it's biblical to me that that's where steel sharpens steel, right? Because if I don't actually share my big idea, it can never be sharpened to be the best idea, right? If it just stays in my head and I never share it, then I put it out in the universe and it flops. My subconscious is going to blame the system because y'all didn't get it. But if I was in a room with other people pushing back on the idea and they showed me the flaws and the blind spots I had, then I would make the idea better if I believe in it or I would catapult it and let it go. Some of us are in spaces where people don't recognize our brilliance in our own families, in our own communities. And so to be in a space where people recognize you're brilliant and don't shy away from it, but actually pull themselves into a relationship with you to optimize that I'll tell you this I haven't had a job yet that the team I was with got me do you know what that feels like to be at work and never can fully express your real ideas that you always have to compartmentalize the idea in such a way that it didn't scare off people and make them feel whatever and you were sitting there sitting on nine more things that that idea encapsulates, but you only could share one aspect of it. And so what I'm hearing is that it's a challenge to translate and, and pull apart and uncover some of these brilliant but complex content and ideas. And this is the thing that got me. This is a, a coach I had, a mentor and a coach. So for a whole year, I'm telling them these ideas and things like that. So I was telling them something recently and he said, I get it. I get it. That makes sense to me. And so I paused and I said, what do you mean you get it? I said, I've been telling you this for years. He said, I never told you I got it when I was listening. He's like, oh, 
I get it. You thought because I could regurgitate what you said, I understood. I didn't understand. I just was repeating back what you said for clarity. I never knew he didn't understand. I thought because he repeated back what I said, he's brilliant, that he got it. And so when you know somebody that's brilliant tells you they didn't get it, and the whole time you've been rolling with them, you think they got it, and they like are honest and transparent and say, I just got it. That's when you realize, man, who else is not getting it? Who else is sitting in a room saying nothing or shaking their head, but in reality, they're not getting it? And he pushes back and say, that's on you. You got to be a different communicator to me to help me get it. And I know this is frustrating to you because you're already off to the next thing. But if you can't do this by yourself, it's on you to help me understand. That's actually, it's actually a really profound and relatable story for a lot of stewards who, who wear hats as system thinkers. You know, how do we become better communicators? Um, that's so fascinating. One thing I'm noticing is that you're really reflective and you're, you're really contemplative. You know, how, do you, how do you ground and anchor yourself? Are there any practices that you engage in? One is I push my, my team to push me, to push back. To, if they don't like something I said or, or I wanted to do, I push them to push back, to own their space. Two, I have a group of elders who keep me grounded. They remind me, no matter how big my head might get from whatever, they remind me how small my head really is. Um, I stand on their shoulders. Um, they remind me how brilliant I am, but how much more I have to, to do to be better. Um, I'm humbled by the opportunity to serve humanity, and I'm humbled by people acknowledging my contributions to humanity. It just forces me to think more deeply about how I need to be better, how I need to share, how I need to be a better communicator, how I need to create some balance. Well, um, Fred, thank you so much for your time. We've gone way over, so I really, really appreciate it. And I know <laughs> that you are like triple booked and whatnot. So um, I really appreciate it. Um, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you for sharing your life journey and also just some of your, just like what you're currently thinking about and wrestling with. Appreciate it. I'm Iway So from Rethink Health, a Ripple Foundation initiative. And this is Unsung Stewards in Turbulent Times.